All right. As I said, uh, this is Palm Sunday, and we didn't get palm branches for you all. <laughs> Cleaning crew is not happy about palm branches. No, um, the topic for today is actually, it's related, but we're not, we're not preaching on the traditional Palm Sunday text. Next week will be an Easter uh, text and all of that stuff, but we're going to continue our campaign, both today and next week as well, but we'll theme it more towards resurrection next week. Uh, today, uh, our campaign is, we're in the second week of a la carte Christianity, we've called this campaign. This is a phrase from Crawford Loritz that I first heard, so if you're not familiar with him, you're welcome. He's really, really somebody worth following and worth listening to uh, as a former pastor who's now retired. Um, but he used this phrase, a la carte Christianity, and it just resonates. It's so true for how we tend to approach the Christian life in the church. We tend to approach it like an a la carte menu. An a la carte menu is where you order everything individually off of the menu, right? So when we approach our Christian faith like an a la carte menu, we try to just take the things that we like out of the Christian faith, the truths that we like, and leave the truths that we don't like, that maybe conflict with our sensibilities today, uh, we try to simply just take the, the aspects of behavior and ethics that we like and leave the ones that we don't. Or we just ignore large chunks of Scripture and we take the things that we like out of it. We want all the stuff that's easy, like the blessing of God, and none of the cost or the challenges or the difficulties that come with suffering for Christ and knowing Christ. We want the comforts, the luxuries, of being a Christian, the comfort to the peace of God's sovereignty, but we really struggle with God's sovereignty over us as individuals and our will. And in doing so, what we're doing is making ourselves the center of authority and not Jesus and not his word. Because the Christian life is a wholesale commitment to Jesus as Lord. So when we say that Jesus is Lord of our life, that means we're surrendering and submitting to his leadership, to his guidance. What he says is true is true. The ways that he says to live are the ways that we ought to live. The big difference, I think, is seen in when we open the Bible and we read Scripture. Are we reading Scripture to determine if we think that this is true? Now, of course, everybody, when you first start exploring Christ, that's your approach. You open Scripture and you say, what do I think about this? That's fine. But as a Christian, if you've been a Christian, if you've claimed to follow Jesus, we don't open Scripture and read it to think that if we think it's true, we think that we think it's true. You following me? Okay. <laughs> we don't read it like that. We have accepted that it is true. And so we are holding ourselves up to it. We are holding ourselves in surrender to what it says and saying, what this says is true, and I'm going to follow it to the best of my ability and by the grace of God. Does that make, do you see the difference there? There's a huge difference in how we approach Scripture, and I think that's indicative of our heart and our posture of the Christian faith. If we're approaching it from an a la carte perspective, we'll approach it with, like, I like this, so I'm going to take this. And when we read something, we say, I don't like that very much. We'll either just ignore it completely, or we'll just reject it outright, right? Because this way of thinking and living, this a la carte approach, is so common in our culture today. This is a real challenge for us to grasp in our Christian faith. We live in a consumeristic society, which is good for economics, right? It's, good. it's a good economic approach. I'm happy with it. I like it. I think it's the way to go. It's the best we can do, right? 
We're constantly inundated with ads that tell us, like, you can have it your way. It's the Burger King ad. I watch a lot of college basketball these days. That is like Burger King's calling card right now. Have it your way, right? And Burger King's tasty food. I don't know. Whatever. Um, and that's fine for economics. So don't hear me, like, bashing Burger King for that. But if we take that mentality and apply it to our Christian faith with the same perspective, that's where we run into trouble. The way of Jesus is not the way of you can have it your way. (laughs) The way of Jesus is the way of I'm fully surrendered to your way, Jesus. I want your will to be done as Jesus teaches us to pray, implying not my will be done, right? So they're different. We can't approach our faith in the same way that we approach economics. Last week we said it starts with this all-out surrender to Jesus, saying, I'm all in with you, take all of me, every aspect of my life. I'm not holding back certain segments of my life, like my home life, my relationship life, my dating life, my children. I'm not holding back my work place, my finances not holding back my politics. I'm not, I don't have all these different spheres of my life that some are apart from my Christian faith. It's just, just my Christian faith. I need to get bigger. No, your Christian faith needs to consume every other aspect of your life. And they all fall under the lordship of Jesus when we say that we are all in with his lordship. For the rest of this campaign, we're going to look at certain aspects of the Christian faith that we tend to choose a la carte and want to keep hold of but aren't, that either aren't or are part of the way of Jesus. We'll, we'll explore it as we go through. Today we're going to talk about self-righteousness. We like to order up a little self-righteousness with our gospel of grace in our Christian faith. And we all do this to some capacity. Some of us are far more prone to it than others, though. Now, you might be thinking, this isn't what I was thinking we were going, the direction we were going with this campaign, um, and I wasn't either. But when you begin reading in Scripture... And if we really do think that Scripture is the authority for our life, belief, and practice, this is everywhere in the New Testament. Paul writes about this so much in the New Testament, about this pull that we constantly experience towards self-righteousness. I would argue that this is the greatest threat to faith in the early church, was this draw back to self-righteousness, towards following the law of Moses is, is how it Uh, manifest itself in that first century. And I would argue that it's still one of, if not the, most toxic aspects of our a la carte approach to Christianity today. And its power is in its subtleties, (laughs) where we have this tendency to delude ourselves, to deceive ourselves, because righteousness is a good thing, right? Doing the right thing is a good thing. But when it takes on this, if we're viewing it in the wrong perspective or in the wrong order, that's where it has power to totally destroy our faith. It's like a toxin that will seep in to your faith and corrode the whole thing. This is mostly directed towards people like me who grew up in a Christian home (laughs) or in certain Christian traditions. And I would also include in those, some of you who are, your personality is just really uh, geared towards following rules. Okay. 
Some traditions in the Christian faith, they focus so much on do these things. Do this, X, Y, Z, and you're right with God. Things that are even good things, like confession, like giving, like communion, like baptism. Good things, good things, right? But again, that's, in, that's the power of this. Things like fasting, things like pray this way. Some traditions focus on things like don't drink, don't smoke, don't swear, don't dance, even. Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> Wear these clothes, right? All of this stuff. Again, the insidious nature of this is in its subtleties. That's where the power lies. Because moral living is a good thing. Righteous actions are a good thing. But if it's done for the wrong reasons or in the wrong order, it is toxic to your faith. Because we begin to view these as what justifies us before God. We'll never say that. But in your heart, that's what's happening. That's why you can't just like think about this for an hour this morning and be like, oh, I'm good. Nope. Monday, Tuesday, <laughs> Friday, you'll see the effects of this on your life. If this is your perspective and approach to the Christian faith. It manifests itself in things like pride and arrogance. But you'll only really know it when you sit and explore your heart. You can deceive me, you can deceive your closest friends, you can deceive all the people around you by being a pious, good Christian, doing the right thing. But if your heart is not geared towards doing this out of love for Christ, not to earn God's love and favor, it is toxic to your faith. I put the whole quote in the devotional this week on Thursday, I believe, but there's a quote from N.T. Wright, and he talks about how sin is just a distortion of the good. And that's why it's so subtle and insidious. He writes, It would be bizarre if following the Jesus who made more wine for a wedding meant automatically renouncing alcohol and sex. <laughs> Think about that. It would be really bizarre if that's what it meant to follow Jesus. But instead, we tend to take these things and elevate them as the primary, the paramount aspects of our identity in Christ. And the trick is, as Augustine said, that sin is always curved, our sinful nature is always curved inward, that everything becomes about me. So what, what is your heart? What is your motive for these righteous actions? Is it out of love for God and others? Or is it to make myself look better? Or is it to help justify myself before God? Those are subtle. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he reminds us that even things like fasting and praying can be done for the wrong reasons. He tells us to go into the quiet room alone and pray. Not just in public, so that people look at you and say, man, that guy can really pray. He tells us when we fast to take care of yourself so you don't look as if like you're, you're all disheveled, your beard grow out. If you're a guy, or I don't know what the... Disheveled look. I'm not even going down that road. Disheveled look for women. Okay, that's going to get me in a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> that one. Oof. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Um, <laughs> Jesus reminds us to take care of yourself. God sees, God knows that you're fasting for him. You don't need to do this to gain the approval of others. 
even these pious, righteous deeds that are good and we're supposed to do and we're called to do, they can become a barrier to our faith very quickly if we don't keep them in the right place. Because I think, in essence, at the heart of it, our self-righteousness or our desire to do the right things in order to earn God's favor in some capacity. One, it's so common that this is what ancient religions were all based on, right? Like, if you, if you do the right things, then God will cause your crops to grow. He'll give you health, or the gods will help you have children, all these other things. When you think of the Greco-Roman gods, right? And if you weren't experiencing those blessings, then you must have done something to anger the gods, right? That's a very ancient way of thinking, and we're not immune from that today. We are constantly drawn back to this, that if only I do the right things, then I'm forcing God to bless me with what I want. This tractor beam just constantly pulls us back to this in the Christian faith. And what we're doing, essentially, we'll never say this, but deep down what we're doing is we're trying to control God. Because a sovereign, all-powerful, transcendent God is kind of scary. We can't control him. And so we try to control him by controlling the things that we can, which is our behavior, right? And then therefore say, God must do this for me in response. And that's not the way it works. And our self-righteousness is no different. It's just trying to control God through good behavior. <laughs> and as Christians, we're especially vulnerable to this. Because receiving a gift is hard. And that's God's favor, God's grace, his salvation that he gives us. It's just that. It's a gift. But receiving a gift is hard. Somebody gave me a gift this week, as I was thinking about this even. <laughs> my first, my gut response was, No. I didn't earn that. And that says something about my human nature, right? That says something about me, that I'm, I repel gifts. Why? Because I want to earn it. And in a sense, that's good, right? It's a good thing. But in another sense, that leaves you like, vulnerable to not being able to accept a gift, which is God's salvation, the most important gift. So, our human nature is to earn things. And grace conflicts with that. Grace says you can't earn it. Paul says it super clearly in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's one of the most commonly memorized verses, and I would encourage you to memorize it because it is so vitally important, which we're going to see in a minute, is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from works. Martin Luther, the great reformer who brought the church back in the 16th century to this salvation by grace alone through faith that Scripture teaches so clearly in the book of Romans and really throughout all of the New Testament. And Paul even argues that this is the way we were made right with God even in the Old Testament. <laughs> Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness, he writes. Okay, here's what Martin Luther said. Sin is not canceled by lawful living, for no person is able to live up to the law. The law reveals guilt. The law was good, right? Fills the conscience with terror and drives men to despair. If you try to keep following the law on your own, like, you're going to be driven to despair, as Luther was. In the church of his day, he tried to just follow all of the right rules and confess and be righteous and holy, and he drove himself mad trying to do so until he uncovered the grace of God, and it was like a burden lifted off his shoulders. 
much less is sin taken away by man-invented endeavors, any man-invented endeavor. The fact is, the more a person seeks credit for himself by his own efforts, the deeper he goes into debt. Many of you have experienced that. You're trying to be made right with God by just being more righteous, and you just feel worse and worse, like further and further away from God, because the more you focus on your sin, the more you'll realize, I can't get myself out of this. Nothing can, can, can take away sin except the grace of God. In actual living, however, it is not so easy to persuade oneself that by grace alone, in opposition to every other means, we obtain the forgiveness of our sins and peace with God. I love how real that last sentence is. Like, we know nothing can take away our sin except for the grace of God, but in actual living, in your day-to-day experience, you will try, you'll constantly go back to feeling as if you need to earn it because there's something in human nature that says, I want to earn this. It's not so easy to persuade yourself that you are made right with God by the grace of God alone. And so we need to be reminded of this so often. You may be thinking as we walked in, like, yeah, we know this, John. You've preached this sermon before. Absolutely. We need to be reminded of this so regularly, so often, that our salvation is not in our own righteousness because that tractor beam will constantly draw us back to that, to doing this on our own, controlling things by being good instead of surrendering to the grace of God. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, we're just going to read a good portion of what he says here in Philippians chapter 3. We were in this text uh, last year for another campaign, so I'm not going to really dive into it a ton. We're just going to read through a good bit of it. I'll explain what's happening as we go through it, but I'm not going not to really dig into it a ton. We'll go through it more in the devotional this week. But even here, Paul says how important it is for us to... Be reminded of this again. Look at verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again. It is a safeguard for you. Apparently, he's already written to them about this. (laughs) Apparently, he's already told them this. But he's saying, guys, I need to remind you of this again and again and again and again because you will constantly be pulled back to the law. You're always pulled back to control, to I can handle this on my own. I can be good enough to be right with God. If only I do these things, X, Y, Z, check them off, I'm good. Paul says you need to be reminded that that is not the way it is with Jesus. He says watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. What was happening at the church in Philippi was there was a group of people teaching that once you accepted Jesus and believed in Jesus that you had to be circumcised. And circumcision was just a symbol that meant you were going to follow the law of Moses. So if you were a Gentile Christian, you hadn't followed the law of Moses all of your life. When you accepted Jesus, the men would be circumcised. And this was a symbol, an indicator, that you're not following the law of Moses. Circumcision was very different in that day than it was today. It was a sign that you're a part of the people of God. So here, what Paul's going to say, for it is we who are the circumcision. He's like, no, we're the people of God. Because we've believed in Jesus, as he says. We serve God by his spirit, not through our own self. It is the Spirit of God who works in us to produce fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, he says. Who boast in Christ Jesus. Our boasting is not in our ability to do the right things and to follow the law perfectly, all the Sabbath rituals and all of that stuff. No. In sacrificial system, we boast in Jesus and in Jesus alone. We glorify him because he has saved us and redeemed us. And who put no confidence in the flesh, in our ability to just be better in and of ourselves. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Paul, Paul's like, man, if, 
if we're talking about being made right with God by following the law, like, I got it. I did pretty good. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, meaning he's part of the people of God. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That was Paul's former life before he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's like, I did everything right. If I'm to be, if we're, if we're just judging by our self-righteousness and our efforts and being a moral good person and part of the people of God, all of it, I got it all checked off. I'm good. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Everything. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He said, all of those other things that I would put my, that I would boast in, that I was like super proud of, that like I never did X, Y, Z. I followed the law perfectly. Like I was a good person. I did exactly what the law required. And those are loss. Not because they're bad, but because knowing Jesus is so much better. (laughs) He's not like discounting those things as being wrong. He's like, No, those are fine. Those are good. But that's like holding a rock when you have a precious diamond. (laughs) There's the difference. The rock is cool, but the diamond's way better. Jesus is the diamond. Knowing Jesus is so much better than holding to your self-righteousness. I consider them garbage. Next time you take out the trash, think of that being your self-righteousness and all your good deeds. (laughs) Consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. So Paul has believed in Jesus, and now he's I just want to know Christ. That's his pursuit in his spiritual life. What he's pursuing in his life is not solely the righteous deeds now. He's just pursuing Christ, and out of pursuit of Christ and love of Christ comes his good deeds and his righteousness. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, to experience the resurrection life of Christ and participation in his sufferings. Paul's in prison when he wrote this letter, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. We're going to skip ahead a few verses to verse 17. In the interim, in 11 to 16, he says that he hasn't attained this goal yet uh, for which Christ took hold of him. Christ took hold of him and has called him to this, to know Christ and to experience, uh, participate with him in his sufferings and become like him in his death and attain the resurrection of the dead. He hasn't experienced this yet, uh, but he's striving for it. That's what he's pursuing in his life and that those who are mature should think this way. So for maturing Christ, that's what we should be maturing towards is pursuing Christ, knowing Christ more even if it means following him into suffering and pain. Then in verse 17, he says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. This gets to the heart of Paul so well. Paul, who had... Remember, he's not talking about pagans, uh, the Greco-Roman pagan religions, people who had lived a very uh, pagan, immoral lifestyle. He's talking about likely his fellow Jews, people who wanted new Christians to 
be circumcised and converted to the Jewish faith and the Jewish traditions. And he's talking about them with such compassion because that was him. If Jesus didn't meet him on the road to Damascus, that would be him. Apart from the grace of God, so go I. Paul knew that so well. And so he can speak with tears in his eyes and talking about those who are trying to disrupt the entire church and pull people away from the grace of God into this self-righteousness. Yet he speaks of them with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Not with anger, not with disdain. No, he wants them to experience the grace of God in this new life in Christ that he has found as well. He says their destiny is destruction. Remember, he's writing this with tears. He's not writing this with anger. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. He's like, oh, guys, you're missing it. You're pursuing all of this stuff. Just trying to satisfy your baser instincts and your desires and things that you need when Jesus is right there. You're, you're clinging to your self-righteousness and following the law and trying to be good and right when you're missing Jesus. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Band, why don't you guys come and get set up? Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. He ends this talking about Jesus, and he reminds us of our topic again from last week, that Jesus has the power to bring everything under his control. One day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? Jesus is in control. <laughs> and one day he will fully exercise his power to bring everything under his control. We can surrender that control or we can fight against it. As we talked about last week, you can go all in with Jesus or you can fight against it and resist it. But Jesus is sovereign and in control and in him is all power and authority. And the hope of the Christian life is that he will eventually transform all of our lowly bodies, these bodies that are so vulnerable to sickness and illness and decay and pain, which I and those of you who played basketball yesterday are experiencing, experienced last night. Everything hurts, right? Uh, and they'll be like his glorious body. We'll be transformed into the glorious nature that Christ has for us. And the Christian life is about receiving the gift of righteousness in Christ, not striving for righteousness on our own apart from Christ through faith and just this desire to know him. So that's my prayer, is that you would strengthen your faith today, and that your desire would be to know Christ more. And that's what would drive you towards good deeds. It wouldn't be these good deeds that are compelling you to be made right with God, but no, you just want to know Christ. You just love him more and more. Lord, Jesus, you are so great. And as we think of you and your glory and your majesty and how you are transforming us, and Lord, we're just so in awe of your grace and your mercy that you would love us. Lord, help us to consider our righteous deeds to be made right with you as garbage, as trash, compared to you, Jesus, that you are so glorious and you are so awesome. How would we possibly go back to that way of thinking and living when we have you? Spirit of God, would you just form that love in us? In Jesus' name, amen.
to know the power of your resurrection. Even if that means suffering for you, Lord, it certainly means surrendering control. It certainly means surrendering to your will. Surrendering ourselves to your grace and mercy and salvation. Admitting that we can't earn it, that we can't control you, God. And we're not going to try to. We're just going to accept the gift of grace that you have given us. We want to know you, Jesus. We want to experience your resurrection life. The fullness of it, Lord. I want to know your love, your compassion. We want you to fill us with that same compassion, that same grace that you have showed us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat for a few moments here. Oh, big idea is that the Christian life is receiving the gift of righteousness in Christ through faith and knowing him. This is so central to the Christian life, you guys. It's confessing, admitting. It's not going back to law. Don't go back to law. Why? When you've experienced Christ, would you go back to that? Jesus is so good. He's so much better than just trying to be righteous and trying to be better. Following more and more laws, it's such a heavy burden that you can't carry. When Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest, you'll find rest for your souls when you come to Christ and you surrender to his grace and to his mercy. Stop carrying that burden. I don't have much to say, but there's a couple of questions here for reflection that I want to ask, because again, this is this isn't talking about folks who this is talking about church people. <laughs> Paul's writing this about people who have taken the good thing of righteousness and they have elevated it to this standard of this is how I'm right with God, and that's why it's so deceptive because it's so subtle. Righteousness is good, but it's in the wrong place. It can so destroy your faith. He's talking to good church people. What acts of righteousness do you tend to cling to as a badge of honor? What do you say, well, at least I never did that. <laughs> when I was growing up, it was purity culture. It was saving yourself from marriage. Well, at least I never did that. There's things like smoking and drinking or... <laughs> <sighs> those became the marks of what it meant to be a good Christian. And if you still find yourself clinging to those things of like, well, at least I'm not that bad, you've missed the gospel of grace. Are you more enamored with the grace of God than your ability to do the right things? Guys, these questions, this is so... Insidious because it's so deeply rooted within us. Like, are you, what gets you excited? What, what are you passionate about? Is it talking about the grace of God? Is it when you think about how God has saved me, a sinner, 
Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Does that stir something in you? Or are you more excited about the fact that, yeah, I, I've lived a pretty good life. I've done pretty well following all the rules. Which one stirs something in you more? When you sin, because you do, do you find yourself returning to the grace of God or guilting yourself into trying harder? It gets at that heavy burden. Are you putting that heavy burden on yourself more and more? That even though you've come to Christ, that you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but as your Christian life, when you sin, when you fail, because we all do, do you find yourself returning to the grace of God and saying, God, thank you, that even though I've failed yet again, in your grace, in your mercy, you have forgiven me, that my righteousness is not in my own ability to be good. It's in Jesus and in his righteousness that has been imputed to me. If that's the case, then you can't lose it because Jesus has given it to you. And so you return to the grace of God and you just rest in his grace and favor. Or do you just guilt yourself into trying harder? So many Christians do this, just like Paul says. He talks about them with tears because it's such a heavy burden. So often we tend to just trash on them because they're self-righteous and they're jerks. And True, but their status is so worthy of pity, too, because they appear to have it all put together, but they're carrying this heavy burden when there's freedom in Christ available. And that is to be pitied as well. So with the answer to these questions in mind, let's read these words of Paul again. These, Paul is just so good with words, you guys. This is, this is so, so good. And I find myself returning to these words time and time again. Make these words your own. Close your eyes as we read this. Keep in mind those things, those answers that you had to those questions that I asked. And make Paul's words your own especially if you grew up in a Christian home, especially if you, for the most part, followed all the rules. Oh, this is so good. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Make that your heart's cry right now. I just want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. We're going to have an opportunity to express now our desire to know Christ, to experience Christ in communion. We're going to remind ourselves as we come to communion that our righteousness is not in our ability to follow rules to check things off the box. We want to, in our nature, sin and then do X, Y, Z and be made right with God again. That's just not the way it works. It's, 
It's the grace of God in Christ Jesus that we are saved. And in communion, we remember that.